So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of Matthew. We are almost done with this book. It's crazy. Uh, we're in chapter 27, starting off in the very beginning of the chapter. Okay, so we have um, uh, Matthew chapter 27. We're starting in the very first, uh, very first verse of that particular chapter. And as I mentioned to the kids, you know, this is a pretty big event. And, and a lot of times we downplay it quite a bit. But you're going to see that the events on Palm Sunday have a direct relationship to the message we're going to talk about today, which is in chapter 26 or 27. Uh, we're dealing now. We're no longer dealing with the time that Jesus was coming in and hailed as the conquering uh, king, as the ruler that was to be. When they sang, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the one that comes in the name of the Lord, that was a huge deal. They were telling the whole world, the Roman occupation, they were, they were putting them on notice. They were letting people know that the king has arrived and their time here in Jerusalem was about to be up as far as the national Jewish sentiment was concerned. This was the, basically, it was, it was the equivalent of, of bringing a giant uh, bit of explosive right into the middle of the town of Jerusalem and getting ready to, to light that candle off. They, they were, uh, this whole area was about ready to explode, literally, with religious and, and national, national fervor. And so this was sort of the, um, the chain of events that, that led up to where we are this morning. Now, I want to read this passage to you. We've got a long bit that we're going to get through. It's 27 verses, uh, 26 verses. But I want to be able to read them to you so that you can hear the narrative unfold. And then we're going to try to break it down as best we can for you. So starting in chapter 27, um, or yeah, 27, verse 1, um, Matthew starts, uh, sort of brings us up to date. Now, I understand the chapters are put in long after the, the men wrote. And so the first and second verse really should have been the last two verses of the previous one, but with 75 verses, they had to cut it off at some point, right? And so they did, they cut off at the wrong place, but oh well. So we're in chapter 27, starting in the first verse, and Matthew is recording this. He says, Now when the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him, and they led him away, and delivered him unto Pilate the governor. And when, um, then, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver that the chief priests and the elders had given him, and saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See that yourself. And so he threw the, the pieces of silver into the temple and departed. And he went away and he hanged himself. And the chief priests looked at the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them back into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together, and with the money they bought the potter's field that was a burial place for strangers, as a burial place for strangers. For this is the for this reason the field has been called to this day the field of blood. And then, then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of one who has uh, whose price has been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, uh, as for the Lord direct as the Lord directed them. Now, in verse 11, the narrative picks back up with Jesus, and it says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused, the chief priests and the elders, by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. 
Now the feast of the, uh, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release to the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At the time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, the the chief priests had handed him over. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders had persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of you two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them again, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him. And when Pilate saw that um, saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water from a uh, water basin and washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourself. And all the people said, His blood shall be on, our, on us and our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus served, he handed him over to be crucified. That's a long passage, and as you can see, it's a pretty, um, a pretty tense time in Jerusalem. There's a lot of things that are happening right now, and um, it starts off, as I mentioned, the last two verse, or first two verses really should have been the last two verses of the previous um, uh, passage. And we see that uh, Matthew is trying to sort of bring things back into focus. Now, I, I've told you before, I enjoy a good mystery. I enjoy a good um, murder mystery. But it's always interesting that when you watch a murder mystery, that you always come into it at the end of the story, right? I mean, our story begins where somebody else's story ends. So it starts off with a dead body. And then you have to go back in time and piece through the whodunits, right? And so you sort of get that impression here. So we're going to deal a little bit with Jesus. We're going to deal a little bit with Judas. But we're really looking at what Pilate and the rest of the things that are happening. It's almost like this crazy, weird narrative. So you see Jesus is now on the platform with Pilate. He's getting ready to try to defend himself. We know that he doesn't really do a very good job of defending himself. In fact, so badly at it that uh, Pilate had to come in. He goes, why aren't you even mentioning it? But yet Jesus sort of sits there and is completely silent as his accusers stand before him with nothing to say. But there were things that sort of led up to that moment. And you can sort of admit it because it says that Pilate was amazed that Jesus was so silent, that he stood there stoically. But there had to be something even more than just standing there silently, taking the abuse that's leveled against him. There had to have been a strength of character. You know what I'm talking about, the kind of character that, that people have when they step into the room. It's like their whole presence fills that space. Jesus was there standing as a king, if you will, filling the space as one by one his accusers come and accuse him in front of the lawful authorities of Pharaoh. But Jesus couldn't have done that unless you rewind the clock back almost 20-something hours to the very beginning when he was in the garden. And it all started off, and you guys know the story, it started off with him on the ground, praying. The Bible says he was sweating blood. As he was begging for God, to take the cup from him. We know that the story goes on from there, and we can have a lot of debate as to exactly what Jesus is trying to say, but the truth of the matter is, the words were very clear. If this, if it is your will, Father, allow this cup to pass from me. And then he says, but your will be done. 
And so we see the narrative begins there. The blood is raining down out of his face. He comes up. He gets down. He goes and sees his friends. His friends say are, are asleep. They wake up. Then the, the accusers come. You guys know the rest of the story. The sword comes out. The ear falls off. The ear picks up. It's now been healed. And now Jesus is, is allowing himself to be bound and carried, if you will, all the way to the high priest, to the elders. And they rail against him, and they, con- they, they try to condemn him. And again, he says almost nothing to them until the final part where they said, Are you the Son of God? And he says basically nothing to them. And that was it. The chief priests and the elders begin to spit upon him. They begin to beat him. They get to treat him like he was dead. And then they carry him back to the governor's And now he's sitting there in front of the governor, and again, he has that moment. But you see, the thing is, you have to remember, is now that he's standing here in front of the governor, he's standing tall and he's eager. He's filling the space with a commanding presence that is amazing, even the Roman general at the time. And he couldn't stand here if he didn't first kneel over here. Because by kneeling here, he gave complete control to God. And there's something precious about when you give complete control to God that allows you to go from a kneeling position, begging for this not to happen, to the point where you're standing here, allowing it to come forward because you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that everything is going the way it's supposed to and you are completely in the presence of God Himself. There is something powerful about this narrative that can do that. And we see the evolution now. But it had to get here. It's interesting that the Apostle Matthew wanted to share a little bit more about Judas. We've talked a lot about Judas. In fact, um, I had some guys in the, in the office this week and we talked a little bit about Judas. And, you know, oftentimes this question about him, we're about to be done with Judas. We're about to be the last we're going to talk about him. It's interesting that Matthew spends a, an inordinate amount of time on Judas. The other gospel writers don't spend nearly as much time on him. He's mentioned a little bit in the book of Acts, but for the most part, he's a, he's a side story at best. But for Matthew, he's, he's using it as a contrast. He's comparing and contrasting between uh, Jesus and the apostles and then, of course, the apostate apostle, which is um, Judas. And you see what happens. He comes in here with remorse. Imagine what it would be like for Judas as he comes. Oftentimes, I think the reason why I spend so much time on it is because, as I mentioned before, I feel in some ways very akin to how Judas felt, how Peter felt, to the, the fact that I know that I've, ne- I've not lived up to, the, to what Christ would have me to be. And I feel like many times that I've betrayed him. And when I, when I feel like I have, my sin has, has, has creeped into my life so much that I, can no, I can't hear the sound of, of God's voice anymore in my, in my head, in my heart, and it's like I know that the sin is, is too much, and I feel like all I can do is fall on my face and, and, and beg forgiveness. I'm fortunate, the Bible says, that if we will ask forgiveness, that he is faithful to forgive us. But if that's the case, then what happened with Judas? Judas comes to the chief priest. We see that in verse 3. It says that he felt remorse. Now, I'm reading this out of the New American Standard, and, and I, almost, I almost hate reading this, even in the English. It's just not a very good, it doesn't come out the way it needs to. I, there's not a single translation out there that captures the, the intensity of, of, of what he's feeling. It, it, it literally means, the literal translation of the single Greek word is seized with utter remorse. The word is metamelanoma. Melanoma? Meloma? Meloma? Not melanoma. Meloma. Sorry. Melanoma is something altogether different. You don't want that either. But it's an odd word. 
And it's like Matthew pulls this out of really like this weird little grab bag of Greek words. It's not a word that's hardly ever used in classical Greek. It's actually what we would call in our language buyer's remorse, you know? Where you go out the one day and you, you, you see that big, nice, cool, screen, big screen TV on sale for like $600. And you're like, oh, yeah, I want that. I want that big screen TV. And you buy it. And then a week later, there's one twice the size for the same price. And you're like, oh. Or you go over to your best friend's house. And I think that now you finally got the biggest TV, right? And you walk in, you look at his big TV, and you didn't realize he just went and bought one for you. Right? And so now you feel like you have to up the ante. Or maybe you buy a brand new car and you look at the price tag and you're looking at the, 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 the money that you have to pay every single month for this, this crazy new car and you're saying, do I really do it the right thing? This is the kind of idea that's going through Judas's mind. It's not complete repentance. There's an actual word for repentance. It's similar to the word that Matthew uses for, um, for Judas. But the word that's normally used for actual repentance, what you see that in, in the life of Peter when, when he was utterly weeping and left the courtyard completely broken, and you're going to see later on, he does repent and come back into the fold. That word is metaneo. It's a different word completely other than the word meta in the front, the prefix. And so it gives the idea of utter and complete brokenness that moves us to the point where we can see nothing other than repent which is completely different than what Judas is going through. Judas is going through buyer's remorse. He had made a decision and he felt like at this point, maybe, just possibly, he had made the wrong one. He could have apologized and repented to Jesus. Jesus is still alive at this point. He could have found him. He could have went to him. We know that a little bit later he comes back to life. He just remembered what Jesus had said for the three years he'd been traveling with him, that he would be handed over to sinful men, he would be killed, and on the third day he would raise again. If he had any amount of faith at all, Judas probably could have just waited, held off just for another couple days, and he could have actually seen Jesus face to face, maybe possibly just at that moment said, Jesus, please forgive me. And you know, I think that Jesus probably would. In fact, I don't think he probably would. I know for certain he would. Because that's the kind of God we serve. Jesus gave him multiple times. Multiple times he repented. But he chose not to. And we see what happened afterwards. He went to the tree and he hung himself. If you want a more clear picture of it, you can see in chapter, uh, first chapter, I think, of, of the book of Acts. And, and um, uh, it gives a little better image of what's happening. It's actually a little more graphic. It's just uh, a doctor writing an account. And they took the money that he had given them back and used it to buy the field so that it could be left as a grave for those that can afford a burial. And that's the final thing we really need to say about this, about Jesus' grave. I've often wondered if he, at some final moment, accepted Christ, if there was some final moment of repentance that happened. And I think any type of um, supposition in that area is just, over-romanticizing the story. Truth of the matter is, we don't know what happened after Matthew. I like to think in my heart of hearts that Jesus is still alive in one final moment to repent, but truth is, according to the account that we have, we have no other choice but to conclude that today, Judas would be marked side by side with Pilate and the rest of them that chose not to accept Christ as their Lord. And then the narrative curves, and you can see the pivoting that's now happening. It moves on to Jesus. 
And Jesus was before the governor. And as we mentioned, the reason why he was standing there was because the strength that, that had been given to him in the garden as the Holy Spirit had now imbued him with his power. His destiny was before him. And I cannot stress this enough, how amazing it is to be able to stand forward and move through into your destiny. We've all had those moments of destiny. We've always had, we've all had that time where we've, we've known beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're right where God wants us to be. Sometimes we get that clarity of vision, that singleness of purpose. We have an idea that God is moving behind us. He's clearing the way before us, and nothing we can touch will fall apart. Everything is going to go according to plan. Jesus is at that moment. He's standing before the governor, and he is actually the one that's in charge, even though the king is there, even though the, the governor is there and Jesus is bowing. He asks him, he says, are you the king of the Jews? This was the pivotal one. This was the part that, that he was concerned about because you have to understand something about Pilate. Pilate, is, his character is not very good. Pilate served as governor from about 26 A.D. to about 36 A.D. So about 10 years he served as governor. So his entire time that he was serving would have been the length of the entire ministry of Jesus. He would have seen Jesus come on the stage. He would have heard the reports. I mean, he may have been an inept governor. He may have been not a very good leader. He may have been sort of a weasel as a character, but he still wasn't a fool. And he was definitely into self, self-preservation because he's a political creature. And so he would have known who was on the stage that might possibly threaten his own survival in the hands of his own king, Caesar. And so he knew who Jesus was, I have no doubt. And as Jesus was coming closer and closer to his moment of destiny, I think that this point was, was something that, that Pilate kind of feared because it meant that Pilate was going to have to stand up and make a decision and be a leader. He knew that the time was going to come where he was going to have to do something about this Jesus character. And now this is sort of thrust upon him. I often think that maybe possibly, just possibly, that, that Pilate was thinking in the back of his head, if he can just put this off, if he can, he can let this go just for another week or two, maybe we can let this slide, maybe we can kick this can down the road just a little bit further so I don't have to deal with this right now. From what we can tell, it wasn't soon after the death of Christ that Pilate was called to Rome. You know the history of Pilate. You know that his end of his life wasn't so good. He fell out of favor in the court, and he ended up um, obviously dead. It didn't work out too well for him. So this is one of the final acts where he could show true leadership, but yet he didn't. And you see the first question he asked as the governor, he's trying to see whether or not there is a true imperial law that has been broken. So he simply asked straight up, are you the king of the Jews? Which, by the way, isn't illegal. And Jesus can rightfully claim, as as a descendant of David, that he is in the kingly line. He is royalty, if you will, if if you'll say, if you'll pardon that phrase. And he simply says, "It is as you say." Basically, just like he said to the chief priests, it's almost an identical phrase. Mark would have would have said the words "ego imi," "I am that I am." This is the phrase that Jesus used. Simply, "I am." And while he was being accused, the Bible says that the chief priest came and, and, and railed at him in front of Pilate, but yet he didn't answer. He stood mute before his highness. I like the passage where it says the governor was amazed, but yet he was not moved. He was amazed by the character of Jesus, but he was not moved to release him. He knew the man was innocent. He knew that these chief priests had brought him because of envy, but he chose not to be a leader. 
that yet to follow the cross. But that tells us plainly he was willing to forsake the master. At any moment, he probably could have stopped this. At any moment, he could have turned to Pilate and said, you know, all this is false. He could defend himself. All Pilate needed was one reason to kick him out, to not crucify him. And Jesus didn't give him that one final reason. And then the narrative fast forwards a little bit. We know that some of the other gospel writers uh, talk about a couple different meetings that happened before the crucifixion. He was kicked over to Herod and kicked back. And again, you just show the, the lack of leadership on the part of Pilate. But finally, Pilate has to make a decision. And, and it was his custom, as part of his custom of the day, to release a prisoner. Now, here's something that's kind of interesting that, we, that, that you may not notice unless you look a little bit deeper into the names of these characters. You have a notorious prisoner. A notorious. That means well-known. He's, he's infamous. I like that word, infamous. He's more than famous. He's infamous. And so you have the infamous character, Barabbas. Why was he infamous? If you look at some of the other gospel writers and look at some of the accounts of, um, of the day, you know that the Barabbas was this, was this notorious rebel leader. He was kind of like the Robin Hood of the day. He was the one that was, was given to the stealing from the rich, the Romans, and doing the crazy stuff and giving to the poor, helping the common man. He was, he was notorious. He was the Jesse James of the moment. But it's interesting if you look at his name. Now, Matthew gave the names in particular. Now, we know that Mark was the first gospel that was written. We also know that Matthew was written not much longer than, not much further after Mark. And so, you look at the name. If you know anything about Hebrew, you know anything about the way the Greek is constructed, you know that the name Bar literally means son of. And so, if you look at son of, what? Abbas. In Greek or in the Hebrew at the time, that means father. So, his name literally means son of father. Kind of weird. It's a weird name. Why would he choose that particular name? Now, I think that, obviously, men in those days, they had different names. Uh, Peter was named Simon. He was also Simon Barjona. There were some other names that he had. And then oftentimes, characters had different names. This was obviously uh, a name that was attributed to him. But he was son of the Father, son of the Father. And then you have Jesus, who was also the son of God the Father. And so what you see here is an interesting way that Matthew is, is doing a comparison and contrast. He's showing Barabbas, the son of an earthly father, and Jesus, the son of the heavenly father, side by side. And now they're standing in front of the people. And because this mealy-mouthed Roman, quote-unquote, leader can't actually show what it's like to be a man and make a decision, he throws it back onto the people. His wife tried to pull him out of it, gave him an out. His wife said, I've been dealing with this dream all night long. We don't know the essence of the dream. We don't know who brought the dream. We like to think that uh, an angel of God came, as he's done many other times in the narrative of Jesus' life, to deal with individuals that were surrounding him. But I can't imagine an angel coming to stop this, knowing that this was the will of God. But I don't know all the details, and I don't think we'll ever really know until we step into heaven and ask Jesus those questions. But what we're looking at here is a complete and utter abdication of responsibility. You see that as Herod begins, or not Herod, um, Pilate throws it back to the people. The chief priests and the elders decide that they don't wish to be the ones to make the decision either. So they push it off to the crowd, the crowd, and encourage the crowd to choose Barabbas. 
The governor again begs. He says in verse 21 and verse 22, please don't choose this guy. Choose Jesus. Notice how he says twice. He says, this is Jesus whom you call the Christ. That was the Hebrew term. That was the word that they were using to define what it meant to be king and Messiah. The Jewish term that was being used there was one that would only mean king. He's basically saying, you can choose Barabbas, you can choose the guy who just a few days ago, you were crying out as the king that you've been waiting for for hundreds of years. Which one do you want? If you see this this spot, it's almost it's completely unique. It's only in Matthew that you find this particular passage in verses 24 through 25. We see that Pilate just squashed their claim and completely gave it over to the Jews. They shouted out, they said, his blood shall be in my hands. It'll be on the hands of our children. I've puzzled over this passage for a long time. Scripture tells us about the seeds of one generation being passed down to the next. This particular passage has been used for years to justify the anti-Semitic movement. The killing and the hurting and the destruction of the Jewish people. Oftentimes in the Middle Ages and beyond, they were called Christ killers, not Jews. That's completely inaccurate. Jews shouldn't be that way. What we don't realize when we just read that is that Matthew is trying to give a parallel here to something that was consistent within the Jewish mindset. I'm going to give you a passage of Scripture. I encourage you to read it this week. I'm not going to go through Jewish history. I'm not going to read it today, but I, I, I do encourage you to read it. It's found in Leviticus chapter 20 verses 9 through 16. It's where God lays out the understanding and the description of what it means to be to have a blood debt, to be to have the 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 the, uh, the blood guilt if you will. This was a common Jewish phrase. This was a common way of communicating the responsibility that they were absorbing. It wasn't they weren't saying as as many people think that we are accepting responsibility from all generations now on the Jews. We the Jews will be responsible for killing off Jesus Christ. That's not exactly what they're saying. They're just absorbing it as a collective body and saying, go ahead and do this. In many ways, they were giving a way for everybody to abdicate complete responsibility, which if you know the narrative, you know when Jesus gets on the cross, he said, no man took my life, but I lay it down myself. He's the one that chose when the time was right. He said it was right, and he chose when his spirit would depart his body. But this is sort of a parallel. And you have to remember how Matthew is doing. Matthew likes to bring the parallels, the ABC, CBA um, construction when he's writing this. He's a, he's a proper Jew when it comes to writing this sort of mentality. And so he's sort of beginning as he ended, if you will, sort of giving a contra view of everything. And he's trying to bring out the idea that the disciples had completely and utterly rejected him. And so had the crowd. This is where it comes to fulfillment of prophecy when his own rejected him in one night. He's at the point where every single person in his life has completely and utterly rejected him. And that's what he's saying. They released Barabbas. The Bible says in verse 26, after having Jesus scourged, they handed him over to be crucified. 
We'll talk a little more next week about the scourging and the crucifixion. But we have to ask ourselves, this particular passage, as meaty and as weighty as it is, and we could probably have spent a couple more weeks just on this passage alone. Ultimately, we need to ask ourselves, what is Jesus trying to say to us? What is the Holy Spirit trying to get us to, to learn through this passage here? This lengthy passage. I think there's there's a lot to be learned, not only in the life of and the death of Judas Iscariot, as he's compared to Peter, but also the way Jesus stood up and accepted and absorbed the attacks that were levied against him. I think if you really look at this, you can see that there's a lot of moments here of profound character. And as I started off this morning saying that the only way that you can get there is standing up for the purpose driven as you start off there in your own. To be able to give yourself completely over to God and have that be your purpose. This last week we had our first study on what it means to make a biblical vow. Brother Gary, I love Brother Gary. If you ever sat in class with him, he, he would tell you, I'm not a teacher, but yet when he comes to class, he ends up teaching more of the class than anyone else does because the man has just so much wisdom. I, and I can pick on him because he's not here. Um, he's, he gets embarrassed when we talk about him like that, but probably one of the wisest men I've ever met. Um, and uh, he's, not, he's not afraid to share his opinions. But he talked about when he was younger, and they were involved in the Methodist church, and there was a, a Methodist missionary that felt like God was leading him to go on this mission field in this far away. And so he took a vow before the Lord saying he would go wherever God sent him, and he believed God was sending him to this place. And, and when Gary met him, he had come back from the mission field, and he really didn't want to go back. But he knew that's where God had commanded him to go. That's where he had made his vow. He knew that's where God was going to send him. And so therefore, he with tears went back to the mission field, knowing it wasn't where he personally wanted to go. And that kind of drives us to concern because a lot of us in, 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 our, in our overly sensitive culture where, where happiness and pleasure seem to be the focus point of what we do, we oftentimes miss the point. A lot of times when we think when we choose our jobs or we choose our professions that we're choosing something that we enjoy doing because it's all about our enjoyment when we do the job that God has called us to do. But that's not the case at all. It's called a vocation for a reason. Not just because they want a cool title for the guy that helps you pick your job out. Vocation means calling. It's not just a job. Anybody can have a job. It's a whole other deal to have a calling. This man had given a vow, and it had, shaped, it had shaped his entire life. When Jesus was in the garden, when he knelt his body and his will before his Father, and he said, not my will done, but yours, I will go where you send me, I will do what you tell me to do, I'll say what you tell me to say, and nothing more. You say, is that really Jesus? Is that the Jesus we know? 
Jesus was, a, he was the Son of God. He was the part of the Trinity. He helped create the universe. He was binding the entire or the entirety of creation together. You mean to tell me he couldn't make his own decision? Well, Jesus told us he didn't make his own decision. He said, I'm not saying anything that my Father hasn't told me to say. I'm not doing anything that I haven't seen my Father do. I'm only being obedient to what the Father has told me to do. He was obedient right into the garden. He was obedient right out of the garden. He was obedient right into Pilate's office. He was obedient right up to the point he was standing there in front of the crowd where Barabbas was being chosen over him. And he was obediently being marched out of Jerusalem to the cross, just as the Father had told him to do. When we sit there and we give complete control over God, it gives us an opportunity to take our destiny in our hands. And I cannot stress this enough. I think this is the main lesson that we need to learn as obedience. And obedience isn't always about our own pleasure. I noticed this week that I was on Facebook far more than I wanted to be. And I was listening to Ravi Zacharias in his book, and I've, I've been, been going back and forth listening to this book for the last two or three weeks now. I was in the final chapter, my second reading through this final chapter, and he was talking about these huge devices, the distractions that we in North America have, whether it's our phones, our televisions, our machines, and he talked about a commercial that he had seen on television, and I remember this commercial. The commercial had a picture of this young boy. who was playing around the house. And, and it's like things just sort of fast forward in this boy's life. And before you know it, he was a teenager. Before you know it, he was a middle-aged kid, a man. Before you know it, he was an old, stooped-over guy. And before you know it, there was a picture of a graveyard he was going. And you're wondering, what in the world is this commercial for? It's a great commercial for a lot of different things. You can go a variety of places. That's a great commercial just to, to show you the shortness of life and that we should, we should be consistently focused on what God has called us to do. It'd be a great Christian commercial. And I was expecting Ravi to, to, to end with that. As, as, as life is short, we need to get more focused on what God has called us to do. But the commercial, on the other hand, went a different direction altogether. It says, life is short. Play more Xbox. Really? We have a short life, so that's what we should do. We should distract ourselves from the life that God has given us more with these, these pseudo-experience machines that have nothing to do with reality so that we can say when it's all said and done, we say a whole heck of a lot of it. easy for me to point fingers at other people, but I look at my week, track my own life this week. I want to know how much time I spent, because I don't think that I spend that much time doing this stuff, you know? But it's just little bits here and there. And I actually kept a little bit of a log, so I'd know exactly what I was doing. About halfway through the week, I gave up keeping the log. You know why? It convicted me. And I didn't like what I was seeing. About Wednesday, I shut the book and said, you know something? Eh. Point made. I understand. I got it. But every time I sat down on my couch and picked up my iPhone, every time I turned on the television to watch my, my daily news program, every time that I did something other than what I know that God really wants me to do when I'm on mission, I realize just how much time I'm wasting. 
congestion we've got is set to forty is fine. We look out and around us this morning and we see a lot of empty chairs. Not that the people aren't here. I saw a couple thousand people yesterday come through the home today. Some of the ones that I talked to were church goers, some of them weren't. I can tell you there are more people outside of church this morning than are in it on a Sunday morning. That's just the way it is. We have the words of life. We have the message of truth. We have hope. Not just hope beyond this life, but hope for a better life until Jesus comes. This morning I was woken up to the news that while we were sleeping, preparing for our beautiful Palm Sunday, as my mind was was contemplating this morning, as I was thinking about how many palm fronds I had, so I was hoping I didn't have enough to cover the whole walkway leading up. There were Christians celebrating Palm Sunday in Egypt. Never realized it would be our last service there Sunday in New York. But there's a bomb there on Sunday where terrorists are attacked by ISIS fighters. We don't see Christians wearing that mask. We know stuff like that. But then here comes an appeal of Allah God. He doesn't wear a face mask. Even the fat guy with large statues. He doesn't wear a face mask. The Jesus of the Ark God. He doesn't wear a face mask. I could go through a list of all the other gods that are popular among men. But whether we're talking about Buddha, Krishna, talking about Joseph Smith, Alexa, they're all gods that if people that exist don't really count. The God that makes people afraid, the God that really makes people turn up to the ears, is the creator of the universe. Father of mankind, the only worshiper of true God. So we need to ask ourselves, are we going to partner up with this dark world? Are we going to embrace what God has laid in front of us? Are we going to be obedient? Are we going to go from the garden to the courtroom with a purpose, knowing that God is driving before us to the garden of Calvary? That's the question I think that we should take from this. As we look at my sadness at the death, the future death of Jesus Christ, at the scourging, and you guys all know that story. If you've seen the movies, if you've read the book, you know how horrible and heinous this, this act was that they did upon him. And when Matthew simply says they scourged him, he just does it, but he does a disservice to what actually happened. Matthew, living through this generation, knew what it was like. But for us, of our sadness is overwhelming sometimes. But we need to remember that just like there is a darkness inside you, there's light in your life. You have options. There's always that moment where God can guide us in and take you out. There's always that moment when the stone is rolled away and that doubt of death is over. And you're alive and you can turn around and do what 
the bones and put them together. So this morning, I ask you, where do you line up in your prayer? Are you like Judas? Have you betrayed him? Have you turned away from him? Have you rejected him completely? Are you more like Peter and the boys who, through a silent rejection, but you've stepped back and you've allowed sin to, to reign supreme in your heart for a while? Are you like the chief priests and the elders that are willing to accept the consequences, but not the responsibility of actually putting them to death? Where are we in the prayer? What do we side with Jesus himself and say, we are partly yoked in to his kingdom on this earth? And at any step in that way, we can hear those words, welcome and benefit the kingdom. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, please don't miss these last few minutes. Please accept him as, as many of us do. It'll give you a sense of purpose, a sense of hope beyond what you can possibly imagine. And I can only encourage you to respond to him. For the rest of us, since your time, since God loves you, we ask you to stand. Father, we love you so much. Lord, as we come to the end of our service, as we begin to think about what you have laid in front of us, Lord, it's a difficult passage to read. It's even present to apply. Father, we know that this world has never really put into practices the things that we see promised when you walked on this earth. Father, I ask that you give us the opportunity this week to be your servant, to be able to see how we can apply your teachings in a more real and profound way. Father, as we seek to love you and to honor you, I ask, Lord, that you give us an opportunity to see you move in our lives. Allow us to be your hands and feet. Father, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, would you reach out to them now? Allow them to leave here today without knowing you personally. Please, Father, convict those that need to be convicted. As we open up the altar and as we allow those to come that wish to come, Father, we ask your spirit to be a wreath upon us that we might truly be your servants in your will. Lord, we commit this service in your hands. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ.